Stay fly. Stay fly. I wanted to use American studies to help me understand the world around me. Brooklyn is a blood type. You know, we got kids in Newark can't read and write, but they're graduating high school. In the what? You know, graduating in them to being criminals. When there are strategies where we can get a lot more of us through, but it's going to be different. It might just take a little bit longer. Coming up with an idea, and before you start to invest everything in it, ensuring you have a paid, somebody who's willing to pay you for a product or service. You're listening to The Fly Guy Show. They do everything on the fly and in such a fly manner. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. They all that you. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. <laughs> hey, this is Larry Thomas here on the Vol School Podcast. You're listening to Psycho Varner's Fly Guy Podcast. Support, like, subscribe, and share. He's saying some good things. Share it. Don't keep it to yourself. Right, right. Peace, beloved. Peace, beloved. Peace, beloved. It's time for another great episode of the Get On Code Podcast, where we deal with health, wealth, and knowledge itself, and the empowerment agenda, which means that we're only focusing on things that are going to empower us. We see empowerment over acceptance here. And today, we have one of my good frat brothers. What's up, team? We have uh, my brother, Phil, and we have my brother, Iron Mike. Both of them bros, so they get two hooks. Two <laughs> hicks for the bros. Roo-roo. Roo-roo. Uh, <laughs> hey, man. Roo-roo. Roo-roo. You're in a position where you teach people art. The art of boxing. The art of business management. You, you, you just, you help people become better artists, man. So I'm really appreciative that we have you on the show. And Phil, you know this brother better than I do, man. Do you want to say some things before we start tapping in? Seiko, I'm really excited to have Mike Stedman here on the show today. Uh, one of my best friends in the world, uh, True Marine. I basically followed his career, not only at the Naval Academy, but also in the Marine Corps. So he's taught me so much just about business, myself, podcasting, economic development, that uh, I'm glad to have him on the show here right now. Roo, 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 roo. All right. So, Brother Iron Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, bro? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'll say it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the platform. But like you said, my name is Iron Mike Stedman. Uh, I joke I joke now that uh, if you lived in Newark in the midst of a pandemic, your name would be Iron too. But uh, like Philip said, I'm a former Marine infantry officer, uh, Naval Academy grad. I uh, had an opportunity to become a three-time national boxing champion, two-time most valuable boxer uh, at the United States Naval Academy, and really just fell in love with the sport of boxing. And one of the things I always joke about was, if you know midshipmen, you know, I like to joke that uh, you don't win three national championships. I have a couple of them. Boxing a bunch of midshipmen. Uh, I spent time in inner city boxing gyms in, the, in Brooklyn, in D.C., uh, Virginia, I mean, you name it, all up and down the East Coast. And it always bothered me that a lot of young men and women inside these programs felt like the whole opportunity was to turn pro. Or to go back to, or to go back to the streets. And I felt like this was a broken system. So, uh, fast forward when I had a chance to, uh, go to the Marine Corps after graduation, this idea in the back of my head was that we should have a, uh, uh, I wanted to create a boxing program in the inner city, similar to the Naval Academy where we box. But at the end of the day, we graduate, we go to college and, uh, you know, we, we get good jobs, we leave the military and then we, become lawyers and doctors and start our own businesses. And I want to create the same experience for a young man, women of color in the inner city through boxing. And so uh, after I transitioned out the military, I relocated to Newark, New Jersey with the intent of starting a free boxing gym here in the city uh, that became known as the Ironbound Boxing Academy, our free gym uh, in Newark, New Jersey. And we've since evolved to where we actually run an incubator program called Thrive, which Philip helped me stand up. And so we're kind of coming full circle around uh, everything that I had in my mind. Although I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I knew we had this philosophy of more than boxing. Um, at a certain point, you start working in inner city, you work with young men and women, and they're gonna come to you and say, hey coach, I need a job or I need employment. you know. And I start to realize that you know, at the end of the day, our programs are just keeping kids in the gyms, recreation. You know, It's really like a Band-Aid on a broken leg. You know, at the end of the day, they need economic uh, opportunities, whether gainful employment, where they start their own businesses. And so I've just really evolved in my thinking of really trying to bridge these gaps between, you know, recreation and, you know, entrepreneurship, which is really just basic economic development. 
and uh, we're just getting after it here in Newark. We don't have all the answers, but we're not afraid to figure it out. Um, and I'm excited to see what the future holds because definitely now, um, I feel like our community needs us more than ever. Um, we're going through an economic depression because of COVID-19, the pandemic, small businesses are decimated um, and uh, they're going to need to support. Wow. Uh, so you went on a mission to serve the community and you found out that to truly serve the community, we needed to have economic uplift in our community. Yeah, it's and I, I uh, so this is what led down to that pathway too. you know, I have friends that I engage with in dialogue about issues around race, economics, all this kind of stuff. And we always don't think the same, but just like in boxing, you need a really good sparring partner to push you. You know, it's the same thing. We try to articulate these thoughts as intellectuals. And one of the things I just came to realize was like, listen, we can lower crime and violence if people were more gainfully employed. You know, I think a lot of times, a lot of stuff that we see in black America is the byproduct of us acting out on this economic system we're feeling where industries are dying and people are having trouble getting jobs and, you know, out of birth wedlock and all these things, you know, that we are equated with as black people as being uh, wrong with our culture. You know, but I, I, I firmly believe that if you fix the economic issues, it's going to lower a lot of these other issues because when everyone talks about, oh, the breakdown of the black family, the breakdown of the black family, breakdown of the black family. But you look at it, it was a different time zone. We weren't in this tech industry. You know, a lot of the breakdown of the black family came about of post-industrialism, you know, and once that hit, we start to see the byproduct of that start to result in the breakdown of the black family. You know, so it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I believe it's the economic piece. Seiko, I have to, I got to jump in right here. So my man, Iron Mike, um, I think he's the new definition of what we're going to call a a renaissance man. Um, Has a lot of ideas, has a lot of things in the community, as well as in the business uh, world as well. Mike, I guess I got to have the very first question, and that's, in your mind, how, as Americans, how do we reimagine capitalism? Like, do we have like completely dismantle it? Uh, I know you have a, a lot of amazing thoughts on the idea, so I just want to give you kind of, you know, to say, hey, how do we as Americans fix capitalism, or is it a completely kind of dead and a moot point? So I think Black America is on a different operating system. I think a lot of the problems we run into when we try to start businesses and we try to do all these things is because we're trying to run it on the wrong operating system. You know, uh, you could argue, I mean, you get back and forth about this, but the drug trade. And all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. So they had to create their own system. And I think a lot of times as black Americans, we kind of, we constantly run up against it. We're constantly running up against it. We're constantly running up against it. All right. But we can't, we can't execute the same strategies. You know, like right now, black owned, black owned businesses, what's a big issue? Big issue is capital. Not even capital to start a business, but you even have to have capital if you're producing uh, goods. Right. For a company, you know, those net 30, that net 60 days. Right. That cash flow is real. And when people all they have is their savings to, to run the operating costs, and not necessarily cash flow. It makes you think about what kind of businesses should we be starting? Right. We can't really start these capital intensive businesses at scale because we don't have the capital in the community. Right. So you say, OK, well, we can't get that bank loan because if I start a business and I try to go to a bank, what does the bank want to see? They want to see a proven track record of success. They're not cutting the loans, all right? What do immigrant groups do? Immigrant groups have their own, basically, um, capital ways of distributing capital amongst the community outside of the traditional um, the traditional government and regulation. And so you're seeing this stuff happen in all these other communities, and they're p- passing African Americans when we're the ones trying to run on the, the operating system, we're told, which has never really worked for us. So we need a lot more uh, collective economics. We need a lot more group economics. We need business education and literature that speaks to our existence as black and brown people in this country. Um, and I think I think that's the starting point. But I think it's first trying to recognize, OK, you know, I have this motto of lift as we climb. Right. I can make it to the mountaintop. Right. For every one of us. You know, but if we leave 100 in the graveyard, why is that winning? And why are we associating that with winning? And we're taught to associate that. Right. When there are strategies where we can get a lot more of us through, but it's going to be different. It might just take a little bit longer. You know, I mean, you always have these conversations. You know, there's this thing of black owned businesses, black owned businesses. Well, what truly is a black owned business these days? You know, a lot of these startups that we claim are black owned businesses. But at the end of the day, if they have all these investors that aren't black, 
You know, is it still technically black owned? You know? Right. You right. got people, and Amos Wilson talks about the power of giving others the right to define stuff for us. You know, that somebody else can come in our community and tell us what a black owned business is and check the boxes for it. When really, we should be able, it's got to pass our sniff test. And so I think it's like taking back that power, right? And understanding that we're running our own race. We're not comparing ourselves to anyone else. Um, and just doing what's in the best interest of our community. Because, you know, a lot of these issues we deal about with race, particularly for black black people in this country, you know, I don't really think it's anybody else's responsibility other than our own. You know, I definitely think people should help us out. But at the end of the day, it's guys like us on this podcast sitting here, chopping it up, talking, living and breathing it, diving into the books, diving into the literature, because I feel like we'll be the ones best positioned to solve these issues. Hey, man, you brought up Brother Amos uh, Wilson, the ancestor Amos Wilson. Uh, what other things have informed your current position on economic empowerment? Yeah. Now look, I know we're all business owners. I own a business, couple of them. You own a very a successful <laughs> a run, some some successful run businesses. I know Phil has studied business and he's working on some really groundbreaking things as well. Um, and but what else has informed your concepts? So my background is in uh, I studied history at the Naval Academy, American social and cultural military history. And then when I went to graduate school, I studied American studies. And I wanted to study African-American studies, but Rutgers Moore didn't offer an African-American studies only program. They had American studies. To be honest, I didn't really know much of the difference. So I enrolled in the program, and I'm really glad I did because it gave me this, just a broad scope of understanding uh, marginalized groups experience here in America. And what started to happen over the years is, you know, when I left the South, when I left home, you know, to go to the Naval Academy, you know, you always had all these old old timers used to always tell you stuff. You used to not listen to them like, oh, man, that's back in the day. It ain't like that no more. And then you get older and then you start to realize a lot of kind of stuff that they were saying was actually true. And so as I started to look at the world around me and I started to think about ways we could succeed at scale, I started to feel a little cognitive dissonance because a lot of the stuff I was getting told or a lot of stuff I read felt like it was working against what I was actually seeing. And I felt this sense of uh, collectivism, like even just this sense of like, I'm starting a business and I have a nonprofit and I have this give back component. And then in capitalism, people tell you, focus on the profits, drop the nonprofit piece, you know, and I was feeling this cognitive dissonance. And I'm like, why is this? Where is this coming from? So then I start to dive a little bit in the literature and I came across a guy uh, named Dr. Claude Anderson, who wrote a book called Power Nomics. And that was really the idea when I when I came across him. I realized I had been ignoring a lot of these black scholars that have been basically um, put on the fringes of history because their scholarship didn't speak to the mainstream. Right. It's not topical. Right. A lot of times we call this history, even the Amos Wilson, you know, people start calling that stuff uh, Hotep and this and that without actually ever reading what these guys are talking about. So you start to look into it and these are very well educated PhD level, you know, in the books, reading the Wall Street Journal, reading all this kind of stuff. And they just start to come up with a lot of uh, conclusions that I had come up with myself. And so even when you start talking about a lot of these issues, because coming from that that kind of scholarship, you know, it's very hard to engage with certain people because they will assume that you're a hotep or that you, you're crazy. You know, when you say we should just start over with the education system, you know, I think black people made the mistake when we handed over our education uh, to the federal government. It should have never been a responsibility. You know, always in the community. And people say I'm crazy when I say we should start over. But it's like, what is the alternative? What do you see now? You know, we got kids in Newark can't read and write, but they're graduating high school. Into what? You know, graduating them to being criminals. And so it's like this whole system. And I'm not saying anything new. It's there in the scholarship. You know, and Amos Wilson talks about this stuff. You, you know, uh, you know, the, the uh, ancestor Malcolm X said that it's crazy for us to allow our enemy to educate our children. Uh, Amos Wilson said some similar things, and Dr. Claude Anderson's book Powernomics is, I think, is one of the best ways to become informed about strategies that can empower our community. Now, when we look back in the history, we already had experience and experiences of economic empowerment. You know, so 
have any of those past experiences. Now we can look at what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We can look at what happened in Atlanta, Georgia. It happened here in the Hampton Roads area in Norfolk, Virginia. In um, now, Mississippi had some really strong areas of great financial empowerment for our people. Have any of those experiences, the history of those situations, Greenwood uh, is another one. Have any of those informed your position? I mean, a little bit, but history is cyclical, right? It repeats itself. It's just like, it just, it repeats itself over and over again. Nothing we're dealing with now is new, right? Even the election, right? Go back and listen to Michael X Ballard or Bullet, right? He talks about what happens with a contested election, right? And then you go back to, what was it, uh, post-Lincoln. Who what was the presidency after Lincoln died, right? And then there was a whole runoff of that, and they had to, you know, compromises were made. Right? It always happens. The whole thing that led us out of Reconstruction. People always compromise on us. So nothing we're seeing is new. But the issue was, when you start looking at those communities, it's because they were forced. So when you think about economic development, which is nothing more than just money moving around the community, right? They had to move the money around themselves because they had no other option. So it forced innovation. It forces creativity. But there was this idea that we're going to do it together. The problem is post-industrialism, post-segregation, you know, and all the kind of stuff that happened with our school system, we stopped moving money around our own community, you know? And this is, again, what's coming into the point we're at now where, you know, Black-owned businesses, I think we're less than, like, I think there's, like, less than 2 million, and that was right at the start of the pandemic or prior to it. Who knows how many have we have now? And half of that 2 million were single-member LLCs. So all we know is that the number of Black-owned businesses in this country is really low. And then we start looking at what are we doing now that's differently than what they did back in those time frames? Like you said, the the the, the Greenwood um, and, uh, you know, uh, who talks about this? Claude Anderson talks about it with the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, we were doing the Montgomery bus boycott. There was a black owned bus company in like Winston-Salem, Durham area. That was like one of the most largest successful companies, you know, but we weren't. I, and I think at the time we kind of think about our approach to history. Right, they're always trying to put us against W. B. Doors with Booker T. Washington, but they're all trying to accomplish the same thing, just coming at it from different directions. We didn't have enough wherewithal of saying, "Hey, not only do we want to integrate these buses, but we need to make sure that what is this? We want jobs, we want economic opportunity, we want city contracts for the the Durham bus company." But we weren't thinking like that, and so what happens? We leave our communities to go into somebody else's communities, and our businesses die, and our communities die, and so we're not cultivating them anymore, and so. You know, you learn from the past. We got to look and see what were they doing? How were they doing? So, Mike, I know you were recently recognized as one of the 40 under 40 business owners in New Jersey. So first, I want to say congrats that I guess the question I have for you is like in your own words, um, how would you redefine economic power, especially for black Americans? So like, basically, how would you can you give us some tangible things in order to empower the black community, especially when it comes to finances and or economic power. All right. I think the first thing is going to come down to education. Okay. And I think the question you asked me is more timely now than ever, because, you know, I'm a patriot. I serve my country. You know, I love living in America. All right. But do you think these small owned businesses in Newark, you know, operating on 25% of revenue from the previous year, Right. You think that they're going to expect the federal government to come in and save their business and give them um, and give them money. The answer is probably no, not. Right. So we've got to start solving these issues at the community level. You know, we need to start creating our own um, financial institutions. Right. You know, traditionally we think of banks, but there's a whole issue with the bank. of You know, we're putting our money into it. And how do banks make money, right? They give out loans, they do all that kind of stuff. But the profits from those, uh, that kind of, the profit from the loans and everything, it's not even going into the black banks. It's going into other banks, right? And there's a whole book about that talks about this. So what we really need to do is we got to come back and take ownership and say, hey, we have these issues. We have to solve it. We need to start thinking of ways we can pull our capital together, right? One of the issues you start to run into now is people don't even believe in micro loans. Like what is 500, what is $1,000 going to do? You know, we need we always think of this giant venture capital piece, but there's a lot of way we can start doing business with each other. I don't have a term for this yet. I'm still working on it. But when you give someone a contract, that's almost like an investment in their business. You know, you give someone a ten thousand dollar, twenty thousand dollar contract. You can build a business off of that. 
And so we we need to start coming up with uh, micro solutions um, for these national issues. But it comes with education. We got to have these conversations. We got to have this dialogue, and we got to have training around it. People have never heard of co-ops and co- uh, cooperative economics, so we might not even know how to do it. You know, we kind of get caught up, right? It goes back to the operating system. And I was talking right. to one woman about it yesterday. You know, when we start a business, what is an entrepreneur, right? Sometimes we want the nice, shiny office. We want everybody else to think we're killing it. But our books aren't killing it. That office is a bunch of overhead. And we got to get a lot of sale and saying like, hey, brother, slow down, man. You can you can set your office up out of here. But it also comes with some humility, right? Because a lot of times we just don't know because it goes back to finance, too, right? You know, nobody talks about finances in the black community. We don't talk about salaries. We don't talk about this stuff. So there's this sense of, you know, really just kind of not knowing instead of creating this transparency so our people understand what business really is and we can prevent them from, uh, you know, burning cash on stuff that doesn't make any sense and playing the long game instead of the short game. So I know I want to around a little bit but at the bottom line we need to start re-educating and coming up with business strategies for us such as don't get a lot of overhead you know right like right now if everybody's learned from this right you gotta have cash reserves and be able to cover from overhead so we gotta look at ourselves and say okay how can we minimize our overhead our overhead costs maybe we shouldn't spend as much time running around trying to pitch maybe we should validate the business model get paid clients and use paid clients as venture capital. That's the best kind of venture capital a customer. Mike, you hit on you hit on a lot of things. And I know Seiko has, you know, all these things that he wants to talk about, but I really want to take us back to your comment about microloans. And I know right now in the city of Newark, you have something called Ironbound Thrive. Would love to hear what is Ironbound Thrive? Is that like a microloan program? And what yeah. are the effects that's happening right now with the young entrepreneurs of Newark, New Jersey? Yeah, so I'll tell you about, so as an entrepreneur, right, it took me, I mean, I'm three years full time, right? But one of the things I start to realize was, you know, you see these successful entrepreneurs and everyone assumes they hit a home run their first time up at play. But that's very rare. Most entrepreneurs I know who are successful got successful after their fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh venture. They were starting lemonade stands in high school, et cetera. And one of the problems I realized with us as a people is we're expected to hit a home run our first time up at plate. And this can be sometimes we're 30 years old, we're 35 years old. So really, I have a theory that if we can speed up the amount of tries, the ventures, right? If we can take more swings, it improves our chances of success over time. Because the idea is that you start one venture, you make a mistake, then you build upon on the next venture, you build upon on the next venture. So I came with this idea to put a program together called Thrive which does, which gives kids an opportunity to try. I call it CTT, courage to try. So over the course of four weeks, you know, we'll teach them how to start a small business, finance, marketing, and leadership. And at the end of that, we would have their first iteration. It was just going to be a pitch program. But for me, it was never about the pitch. It was always about the education. And so I put the prize money in to incentivize the education process. And we just got done with our second cohort where we didn't run a pitch competition per se. Everyone walked away with a cash, uh, a grant between $500 and $2,000, right? And what I, the reason we kind of did that is again, going back to if they put in the time, right? They go through our program, they submit a one page business plan, a financial plan and a personal essay. I believe we can also start a network effect because that kid who's gonna apply to some kind of entrepreneurship program does all the work, does everything he's supposed to, receive some kind of uh, monetary conversation, I'm willing to bet they're going to be more likely to apply to other programs. And that's what we're seeing. And what I'm able to do, too, which I go back to this collective economics, look, I have two businesses. I have a podcast, podcast production company, and I have a nonprofit, right? I need photos. I need videos. I need services. So what I can do is I can cultivate talent through these programs. And Sego, you know how hard it is to find good talent? Right. Hiring people it's better when you groom them up. You know what I mean? They understand they work with you and we're getting 10x off of that already. So what we're doing is we're creating basic level economic development. Right. Collect cooperative economics. Right. And we're just facilitating it through this incubator program. And what I'm finding, too, is people in my network. Guess what they're looking for? Good people to work with. They would very much rather hire one of our kids who's hungry, who they know has gone through our program, 
than they would trying to search the internet for someone to run their social media or this and that. And so, yeah, Thrive is really just, it's just grassroots uh, economic development covering an age gap we often overlook, which is at 15 to probably about 24. Man, uh, you're talking some really important pieces here. Let's talk about how this connects, you know, economic empowerment connects with political empowerment. You know, one of the things that I know in business is is quid pro quo. I do something for you, you do something for me. I have come to the understanding that in our community, we often look at politicians as either saviors, they're going to do something for me and I don't have to do it, or superstars. So, you know, we support people because we really like them. And we really like to wear their, their wife dresses or we like the way they talk. You know, they're they're just uh, an impassioned speaker. And we love that, you know, and it, we like the optics, but we don't necessarily look at the uh, policy that goes along and how that policy impacts us. But I've also come to the conclusion that without a strong economic base, we're going to have a hard time with influencing the politics around us. You know, I show this poll tax receipt very often from uh, some uh, one of the ancestors in my wife's family in her lineage. You know, he paid this money so he could vote. So I see a strong connection between economics and political power. Do you see the same thing? I do, but I think we've leaned too far to one side and not enough to the other. You know, we put so much emphasis on political power without the economics, you know? And, you know, for one of the reasons I, you know, people are always like, Mike, you should run for politics, you run for politics. You know, for me, I don't like asking for permission for things. You know, and the nice thing about being an entrepreneur, if I wanted to run Thrive and I had to go through the government to get permission, it would have taken like five years, maybe, versus just me organizing some private donors and launching this program. And again, I think we've got to understand that we need an economic base. Right. Economics, economics is power. We don't have any power right now. You know, we we're asking for handouts. We're asking for all this kind of stuff just because we don't have a, a strong economic footprint. And we this is the reality. It is what it is. You know, so how can we pull the money we have together to give us an economic base? Yo, people think I'm radical when I'm saying sometimes, hey, maybe we shouldn't invest in the stock market all the time. You know, we shouldn't. Don't get me wrong. You should diversify. But maybe we should have a fund, particularly for our communities. You know, but all of a sudden that's like so radical. You know, but it's not that radical. We have the Black Economic Fund that's been around for at least 20 years. But as you said earlier, you know, when we start speaking about some of these progressive approaches and strategies, you know, you know, I'm a hotel. People say, oh, you just a hotel. Oh, you just a black power person. You don't see what's really happening. And it seems like we very often minimize when I say I say we and I need to I need to push back on that. There is too many of us who minimize these strategies and minimize these initiatives. You know, you talked about cooperative economics. I learned about cooperative economics maybe as a three-year-old when I started celebrating Kwanzaa because that's one of the uh, principles, you know, and it wasn't new at that time. Other groups here in our great beloved country of America that you serve, thanks for your service, have been operating on the concept of cooperative economics. But for some reason, we focused recent, I guess, I want to say because of the civil rights period, I really believe that we focused on getting accepted rather than getting empowered. And because of that empowerment piece being the denominator instead of the numerator, you know, I think that you know, we've placed ourselves in a position where we're still asking us, please accept us, please give us stuff. But I say now we make empowerment the numerator and acceptance the denominator. We put empowerment over acceptance. And so, uh, yeah, but these these ideas have been around. You know, Claude Anderson didn't come up with nothing new, but he came up with something that was well-organized and well-researched. Amos Wilson talked about it uh, many years before Claude Anderson does. Um <sighs> There's another, well, I think you're right. Go ahead. Another author, Dr. Kuwanja Kunjufu, I think his name. Kunjufu, yeah, yeah. He a book called Black Economic Empowerment, and it's really good too. And he talks about the same kind of stuff, you know, about like why are we we have a ton of recreational programs in urban communities, right? How many entrepreneurship programs do we have? 
How many business programs do we have? How many finance programs do we have? Now, we love to criticize this kind of stuff and say that, but how many of us, people like me and you, are starting these programs? You know, at a certain point, it's just, if not me, then who? You know, nobody else is going to come in our communities and tell our kids how to start a business or how to diversify and how to do all these things. It's nice if they do, but it's not necessarily their responsibility. And going back to what you're saying of like, nothing we're seeing is new. You know, uh, yeah, black economics, solutions for economic and community empowerment. Where are you starting to see right now, right? You're starting to see a big push for these employee-owned firms in main capitalism, not even in black economics, you're talking about main capitalism. What does an employee-owned firm look like? Probably a lot like cooperative economics, you know? Because it's this idea of like, if I toil and I slave for 30 years working for a company, right? I feel like I have some ownership in that company and making it great to what it is. And when you incentivize workers to have this feeling of like they're a part of this thing, right? I feel like they're going to produce for you, you know, especially in the midst of challenging times like a pandemic and stuff. But we're starting to see this now. And all of a sudden it's new, right? Employee owned firms. Okay. You see it in health and wellness. Everybody's going vegan, right? Eating clean, all that kind of stuff. You look at herbal herbs. Black people have been, been eating uh, nuts and berries and everything else for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Nothing is new. So again, it goes back to us first educating ourselves, right? And understanding that, like, again, our ancestors had it right. They taught us all of this stuff. We just didn't have enough sense to uh, understand it and consume it, or it's just by design. That's another thing, too. You know, it's by design when you think about why do they not want people pooling their businesses together. You look at this country, right? A lot of the biggest issues, you know, we don't even talk much about the labor movement, but it was <laughs> violent, you know? And, uh, and it's, we got this whole bad history around labor in this country. And so, you know, it's just a lot of, the history is there. We just need our generation, guys like me and Phil and you, to just kind of push this knowledge up to the top because Kunjufu, he's older now. He wrote that book a while ago. You know, and in that book, he talks about one thing he talks about. I forgot the name of the meeting, but he has a meeting once a month where everybody comes to the meeting and everybody brings a hundred dollars and best business. You bring a hundred dollars and a business plan. At the end of that meeting, whoever has the best business plan, everyone gives them a hundred dollars. Right now, that might only be what? Twelve hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. But last time I checked, it costs to register LLC. It costs to get a website. It costs to get some stuff. You know, so we got to help our people start to get some momentum, you know, start to just 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 invest in them just a little bit. Seiko, I want to I want to jump in here. So, Mike, I know you mentioned a lot about uh, you said a lot of buzzwords there. You said, you know, secretary of labor. You said the right to work, uh, the unions. But there is one word that I really want to seize on, and that's education. I think education, you know, like I've said before, will always be the great panacea to a lot of the issues that that plague our community. So, Mike, I want to know, like, as black Americans, as African-Americans, how can we best educate our people at the grassroots level? I think everyone has been trying to spit. Would love to get your view on the take. So I've recently become a fan of an African-centered education. I just didn't know what it was. I just knew I was feeling this cognitive dissonance, right? This idea of like, man, like profit is nice, but I also want to help my people. But you know, capitalism tries to make us feel bad about it. But then you start to understand again, this is in our DNA. You know, I had a guy on my podcast talk about how uh, our memories and trauma and stuff is passed in our DNA. So a lot of the stuff we're feeling, this pull we feel towards our people, this pull of uplift, that's really in us, you know? Right. And so we got to cultivate that. Education is about the individual. You know, education is you're on your own educational journey and you want to empower them with tools. And so, again, I think we need to sign up, you know, start pulling back and saying, OK, survive and thrive. Right. What are we teaching our kids that is literally going to help them survive and thrive? If it ain't helping them survive and thrive, throw it out or give them the option to study. it. You know, but we got so much stuff in our curriculum now and it's not helping them. You know, but we, and then we ask ourselves why? Because we handed this education off. You know, we've got people in positions of power that will never step foot in Newark community dictating the curriculum that these kids should learn, right? Dictating uh, what success looks like, right? Without ever stepping foot on the grounds there. And so we got to start getting community centered uh, education. You know, I, I, you ever seen Sounder? Remember back in the day on the, on the movie Sounder? 
No, no, yeah. Mike, I, Mike, I haven't seen that. <laughs> okay, I, I've, I've never seen it either. My wife and I were just talking about I've never seen Sounder. I've seen clips on YouTube, but I've never seen Sounder. So look up Sounder. It's a good movie. I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm a fan of the days. I still dream about those days. Like when people went to college, if you were a black kid from the South and you went to college, it was expected you were to come back over the summer and run that schoolhouse, right? You had adults, you had kids, you had everyone in there, right? Because it was a big deal. It was it was uplift without being mandated. It was just understood. You went to school, you brought that education back to the community, all right? We've kind of lost that, you know? Again, we, we don't have that. So what I want to see more of, I want to see more education focused on us, by us, that meets our needs. All right. To that end, you're giving away free business coaching. I see this on your website, so I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) You're doing free business coaching. So if they go to your website, they can obtain that free business coaching. Right. What are some of the things that you teach in that business coaching that will help our community? So I think one of the challenges we struggle with, too, is the business acumen piece. Right. And understanding like strategy and all this kind of stuff. So one of the things I teach, especially with my thrivers is, you know, a lot of times we start businesses and we think we have this great idea that is awesome. We ask our parents and our cousins and they think it's great, too. And so what do we do? We launch the business. All right. Versus validating the business model first. All right. And what I mean by validating the business model, coming up with an idea. And before you start to invest everything in it, ensuring you have a paid Somebody who's willing to pay you for a product or service. So once you get that validation, you know, you get it, then you get a couple more. And now you have what's your proven business model. You know that you can start this business and that people are willing to pay you for it versus doing it the other way around, coming to a business model, trying to force it on the market and then no one's paying you for it. Okay. so how do you do that? Well, one of the things is even how you communicate your offerings, how you break down your offerings. You know, a lot of times there's this term called frameworks, right? Which I didn't even know what a framework was until, shoot, probably like 29, I think, when I went to my first incubator program. But all a framework is a way you do things. You know, it's the way you package things. So putting together, you know, a, a, a rough business plan, talking about one page, coming up with your framework and going out and selling. You know, that's one of the things I teach them. Another thing I teach them about is finding a taxi. You know, a lot of times you want to start a business, right? And you don't have any credibility. No one knows who you are. Um, and it's hard to get started. But when you find a taxi, all you're really doing is looking for a channel partner, someone who already has a client, a contract with a client that you may be interested in that you can work for, right? So let's say uh, there's an advertisement agency and they work with a dream client of mine, all right? I can't get that dream client because I'm too small, but I might be able to get the advertising agent to come on board and run podcast production services for them. Now, the advertisement agent is gonna take the majority of revenue Right. They're going to kick a little back to me. But at the end of the day, I'm getting experience. Right. That dream client is on the resume. I'm getting experience of working at that level. Right. So understanding that this is like this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so being a little bit more strategic in our approaches. Um, and that works really well, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we think we want to start these businesses and we want that that million dollar client right off the bat. But if you've never been in business before, if you've never had a client and you're going to go ahead and get a one million dollar client or something crazy like that, you have a risk of punting it and really ruining your reputation instead of doing what? Getting some base hits first. And so thinking about ways to get those base hits, build your traction, you know, really think about what's working, what doesn't work, get things right. So that way, when you go get that dream client, you hit a home run. And what are they going to do? They're going to tell you, oh, my God, this client's amazing. They do so much great stuff for us. John, you should talk to them, you know, and understanding how you build a a professional reputation as an entrepreneur. So that's an example of a strategy, you know, taxi, um, again, validating the business model. You know, another thing, too, is particularly for black entrepreneurs, we spend so much money on aesthetics, on brand aesthetics, the Instagram, right? Like uh, the pictures and the videos and all this kind of stuff, right? But that doesn't necessarily make us money. You know, what they got to realize is we, we, a lot of times we trying to mimic what we see a lot of these other big brands do without the big brands budgets. You know, we got to be a little bit more strategic. And so I'd argue a lot of times for small businesses, you know, one of the things we need to focus on more is what is the experience like when we work with a client or a customer? Because that's brand too. And you create a good experience, 
what is going to happen? They're going to recommend other people to come, whether it's a restaurant, right? You know how you go into that restaurant and it's perfect. The waiter's nice. You're like, man, I'm really loving this place. Food is good. The experience from the time you walk into that door to the time you leave was absolutely amazing. So what do you think is going to happen? The next time somebody comes into town, man, I got to take you to this spot. You got you to meet the staff and everything. We don't think like that. What are we doing? Oh, we got to invest in this video shoot. We got to get this marketing. We got to do all this kind of stuff, right? Instead of focusing on creating an experience that orchestrates and stimulates a consistent stream of referrals. Wow. That's, that's, that's nice. That's, that's a gem. That's a pearl, as we would say. Um, a piece to the brass. Uh, give me another pearl, man. Give me another pearl. Another Seiko, business pearl. Me, Seiko, let me let me uh, let me jump in right there. I think, uh, Mike, you've you've said you've said so many great things. Um, Seiko said definitely giving me a lot of pearls to consider. I guess I want to maybe ask the exact same question, but as you know, I'm a huge fan of scale, right? We can do things with the, you know if, if there's like a small n, if n equals one or two. Things you know happen over time very slowly. At scale, how can we? How can someone use your business plans for a city or for a state or for a region, right? So how can we have large systematic change? I think that's probably the pearl that I want to gather here today. I think one of the things is we got to start publishing more IP and we got to own our IP. That's what led me in the podcast, to be quite frank, because you know I feel like media is something we don't do the best at. Right. We have all this media. We have all these videos, but we don't use a lot of it to teach. Right. It's a lot more entertainment. And so using media that we have, the channels that we have to teach this kind of education, you know, we should be running business classes on BET. You know, like, let's be honest, you know, but what is it? It doesn't sell. Right. So we don't do that kind of stuff. You know, we should be running podcasts on um, on mixtapes and all kind of stuff. Right. That just delivers this information. Um, but again, you got to kind of reprogram the brain about what is education, you know. And one of the things I've also learned is have validated is we're an oral people as black people, right? We come from an oral tradition. There's a reason we're good storytellers. There's a reason we're good at poetry and singing and dance. All these things that we have within us, we need to be using these tools to communicate our education. You know, a lot of times that's why you know sometimes people aren't the best in the classroom. Right, they weren't meant to sit there and just read a bunch of stuff all the time. Sometimes they gotta go out and get their hands dirty. They gotta listen to it. You know, you hear it in the in the songs and all that kind of stuff. So we need to create intellectual property that can be distributed at scale, um, and so that uh, we can kind of have like this open source. You know, how people kind of like open source best practices, what works, right, 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 or people constantly have access to. And we're not going to get that true. Again, when I talk about, we're not going to get that true through the traditional publishing system. You know, we represent less than four percent. Black authors represent less than four percent of uh, the publishing industry. You know, so realistically, like uh, if we write a book, is it going to get at Barnes and Nobles? Is it going to be mainstream more often than not? So we've got to create our own channels for getting this information out, which is why I like stuff like this now, because, you know, podcasts and whatnot is so powerful. Now, I do want to push back, though. One thing I will tell you is we're often pushed about scale, 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 scale. You know, what's the point in scale if my community can't even survive? You know, and so at a certain point, I think you get the information out, but I don't necessarily think we always need to scale every single thing because what works in Newark is not going to work in uh, New Orleans. They have their own kind of issues that they're dealing with there. Now, they can apply some of the stuff, but just give them the option to. But I think sometimes we miss opportunities to solve issues at the local level because we're always trying to scale them. All right. How do we solve some of these concerns? How do we solve the concerns with uh, or how do we what strategies would be helpful from your position to address the fact that we're not having the same experience with America's judicial system? You know, our our, our, our Caucasian brothers and sisters, they're not having this. You know, you know, they're arrested. We're killed. You know, we saw that with the the vanilla ISIS experience that just happened on the Capitol Hill. You know, if that would have been a melanated group of people that took over the Capitol, they would have locked the doors and we would have been arrested right then and there. But as we saw, many of them were ushered out 
and they were let go. And then the government went after the ones that they wanted to go after. It would have been a totally different experience for us. And history teaches us that. So what can we do economically to address this situation? This is a very challenging one for us because the bottom line is they get away with it because they can, you know, and it becomes back to power, you know, and me and Pip, me and Philip go back about this all the time. You know, we always put so much emphasis on voting. We do as a people, right? It's great vote. But would you argue that it's just as influential to do lobbying, right? Because lobbyists have a lot of influence in these places. So I think we got to make it to where it hurts them in the dollar, Right? It's got to hurt them in the dollar. They got to feel the economic pressure. You know, what does it say? Black people have what? One trillion or something in black buying power? All this kind of stuff. Well, what are the industries and places that once they start to feel that money not coming in, that is going to make them start to work and say, hey, we need to fix this? You know, because right now that's just not happening. There's no pressure. So there's still, there's just still sense of like, we can do these things, we can get away with it. You know, we've got to. We've got to put pressure on the economic front. And the only way you can do it is where you spend your money. Where are we spending our money? You know, how are we spending our time? All oh, Mike. Kind of- yeah. Mike, I, sorry. I just, want to, I just want to jump in there. I know you and I argue about this all the time. A hundred percent. I think it all comes down to economic power. But I do want to push out like voting is important. I'm always going to stand on that. Like voting is important. But we have to do other things just besides just vote. And that goes to economic power. I'm not saying it was important. My question to you is, what is more influential, voting or lobbying? Whoa. Okay, you know what? Oh, you got me amped, yo. That that was a pill. That was a pill. That was a pearl. Hey, look, man. I like the fact that you're putting economics as the numerator and voting as the denominator. Look, uh, our ancestry went through some struggle you know we say our ancestors died for us to have the right to vote and I believe it's our opportunity and it's our responsibility to make that vote more valuable so if I give you a property it's your responsibility to make that property more valuable so we can have generational wealth so somebody fought so we had the right to vote and it's our responsibility to make that vote more valuable so we can have generational political power. And now one of the ways I think we can do that is by making such a strong economic front because politics serves economics. So those people who were economically influential, they get the votes to serve their business. For instance, we can go back to when President Obama was in office. When that tragedy happened, he said, these companies are too big to fail. Now, that may have been a good decision. It may have been a bad decision. But the idea that we can't let these economics fail because government's not going to be able to save us. We got to take care of the economics first. And so we we made decisions right now. We're going with another stimulus plan possibly coming up. And that's because if the economics fail, the government fails. So I think I got to jump in here that we gave people six hundred dollars. What is that? Five fifty? Yeah. I'm not talking about the way it was done. Yeah. I'm saying that over and over and over again, I see that the money comes first, the economics follow. You know, for instance, we've been talking about reparations and we talk about the Marshall Plan. So after America destroyed Japan, we said, hey, we need to get them as our political ally. So America invested millions of dollars into the rebuilding of a country that we just destroyed because we need to have the ability to have a good political relationship with that country. Now, of course, our country said, yo, we screwed y'all over, but y'all just fend for yourselves. You know, it's never given the descendants of those who were displaced, destroyed, enslaved, all of that, a Marshall Plan. You know, uh, we gave it to our Native American family. We gave it to our Jewish family. We gave it to the Japanese that were interned here in the United States. You know, we've given everybody else economics, but we haven't gotten it for ourselves. But my point is, America has shown repeatedly that the economics comes first, then the politics comes second. So I agree. We're not saying don't vote. But one of the ways you can make your vote more valuable is saying, I ain't rocking with you unless you rock with me. Yes, you have I'm not spending my money with you unless you spend money with me. You have to. That's how it works. You have to. And again, 
I'm not. I think we have been sold this dream that voting and the system is going to fix the issues for us, and it's proven that it hasn't. That's all I'm saying. It's proven that it's happened, right? In the '60s, right before Malcolm X was killed, he wanted to go to the UN about the way black black people were treated in America because he didn't trust the federal government to address the issue in a way that was going to be uh, do right by black people. He felt like it, it wasn't going to happen, right? So he was trying to get this approved uh, to make it a, a, a UN issue, right? So again, I'm not pushing back and just say voting. I'm not telling people not to vote. What I am saying is people vote every day with their dollars. People vote all the time. And we we are two on one side and not enough on the other, right? How many people do we have go out and vote? How many people do we have owning businesses in this country? You know, and if we don't have, if we don't own businesses, then we have to accept the fact that we are laborers. This is the reality of it. And you know what? With with the pandemic and what it's done to black-owned businesses and this shift to tech, right? A lot more people are not going to be able to participate in this emerging tech industry, right? So what does that put us as? That puts us as laborers. And laborers are the at the bottom of the economic totem pole. And if we can't compete, what are how are we gaining employment? The federal I'm real I am legitimately worried that we're going to be on some kind of federally subsidized uh, employment for a lot of our people, especially in the Detroits and the Newarks and all these different places. If these jobs, they don't have job opportunities, you know? Well, that's what the federal government does a beautiful job of doing. It does a great job of employing people. What happens, right, when all these, these black workers at the, at the community level, the recreation center managers... You know, all these government positions. What happens if there's a government freeze and they're not getting paid? Right? Newark is that, I think Newark was at like, I don't want to misquote numbers. We probably had like 20% unemployment prior to the pandemic. Who knows what? About 60, 70% of our population is employed by the government. Those jobs go away. We have a serious issue. I mean, we already have a serious issue. But those federal jobs go away, those state jobs, those local government jobs go away. You know, where does that leave us? We're like almost unemployable. We can't even hire graduates from our own universities. Like that's the issue where it's literally a mess. But again, you know, we're sold this dream. Oh, we made all this progress, we made all this progress, right? If you're a black college graduate, right? What are the chances of you going back and getting hired by a black business at a wage that you probably deserve? A livable wage. A livable wage. What black-owned business in this country can hire Philip Jones? Right off the bat. You know, Harvard MBA graduate, MPP graduate, right? Commands a, a respectable salary, right? What business can hire him? What firm can hire him right off the bat? Well, you know what? There are a number of firms that can hire a Phil. That can hire a Mike Stedman, a Seiko Varner. There are a number of them. I think our issue is not saying where are they. The issue is making sure we know about them all. Because I can rank off, I could probably roll off 10 or 15 off my head. But that's simply because I put myself in a room where I'm with a Don Peoples. I'm with the A Donahue Baker. You know what I'm saying? I'm with the A Will, I mean a Will Mingo. I'm with a uh, Angela Reddick's. You know, I'm with a Gary McCullum. You know, I can name off 15, 20 of them, but that's because I put myself in those rooms. I think it's important because we have developed a mentality and a, a, a false awareness that we don't have. So, you know, we say, well, the black community doesn't have this. Well, the black community had it for a long period of time. Correct. And then we've, we've only been without it for about 40 years. We've only been without the ability to realistically employ ourselves for about 40 or 50 years. And when I say that, you know, I'm not saying like you're right. But do we know this? Right. I know the firms. But again, this is not readily, easily information is what I'm getting at. This is not a search. Like if you want to work for a black owned venture capital firm. Right. You probably got to go looking for it. Right. It ain't going to smack you in the face. You know, uh, Camel Camelback Ventures. Camelback Ventures. <laughs> but again, when you talk to these founders, right, their experience is completely different than the mainstream. You know, let's be honest. People are taking cuts to go work at some of these places just because they believe in the mission and the values. You get what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that they're not employing them. What I'm saying is it's a different kind of experience, right? Like 
we go into these environments and we understand that, hey, we might not have a Salesforce software right off the bat. You know, we might not have this giant cloud infrastructure. We're making it happen, though. You know, we don't got the corporate jet. We don't got all these kind of things. And so now, but again, but the reason I bring this up is because a lot of our talent, right, is getting competed against a lot of other places, too. You know, and so when that talent, that IP and all that kind of stuff, what is it coming out? It's going to firms, writing articles and doing stuff for these firms, but not necessarily for us as a people. Mm, good point. Go ahead, Phil. I, you know, I'll talk the whole time. <laughs> no, no, it's it's like, oh, trust me, uh, Mike and I have had uh, multiple conversations over the uh the decade that I that I've known him. No, I really before I turned back over to Seiko, Mike. Um, I just want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, but also, I really I think want to invite you for you know part two, part three, part four. I think uh, these conversations are so important for us to have in our community. And I just want to make sure I, I give you the proper thank you before you and Seiko go go back at it. But honestly, brother, I really appreciate it. You've been a mentor, not only in Omega Sci-Fi, but also uh, the military and the business world. So thanks for coming on the show, brother. And uh, Seiko, over to you, man. All right. Cool beans. Cool beans. Confessions of a native son. Talk to us about your podcast, bro. Yeah. So um, like Phil said, I think I'm a little bit of a renaissance man. You know, I've had this boxing in me, which I started with Ironbound, which started at the Naval Academy. And then I've been able to express through Ironbound. But, you know, I had that background in American studies. And I was very adamant when I started that program that I didn't want to be a teacher. That was not my goal. I wanted to use American studies to help me understand the world around me. Um, And so I launched the podcast Confessions of a Native Son to really keep cultivating that that experience and that understanding. The best way I can describe it is it's it's a head nod to Richard Wright and James Baldwin, you know, two American uh, literary uh, literary critics. keeping that tradition going from the perspective of a black veteran because I don't feel like we've heard our perspectives enough and so what it allows me to do is it really allows me to do a deep dive on America and give social commentary through my lens and the lens of my guests and on a selfish level I also like to view it as my personal PhD you know I get to do deep dives I get to read books it forces me to articulate my thoughts feelings and emotions uh, to an audience and so that's really why I do the podcast is it, it forces me to grow. Okay. Okay. I just got a chance to listen to um, one of the episodes where you talked about the cannabis industry. Yeah. And what was really intriguing to me is in that conversation, and this is still dealing with economic empowerment. You shared that the way you were raised, you were raised to demean people who engaged in the consumption of marijuana. And you learned over time that some of the most powerful people were involved in the consumption of it and that it didn't make somebody, it didn't necessarily make somebody the demon that I was growing up. You know, I grew up with that as well, you know. Uh, so I, I thought that was a really great conversation. I don't want to dive too deeply into it. I think they need to listen to it on your podcast. Where can your podcast be found, brother? It's on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your favorite podcast hosting platform. Just type in Confessions of a Native Son. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, check it out. Um, Again, I put a lot of love into the podcast. You know, Um, season one, I got deep into my experience as a black veteran and some issues I dealt with uh, serving in the Marine Corps. Um, And then this season, I'm really trying to step it up, do a little bit more deep dives on some issues that, I don't know, just kind of comes to surface that I want to I want to talk about. You know, one of the things me and Phil are going to discuss on the podcast is the case for uh, racial equity. Right. I think Kellogg put out a report that's saying that um, equity is actually good business. And we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on that um, to talk about that. There's another report that was put out by the Brookings Institute called Five Star Reviews. And it talked about how even if you just opened up a black owned business, if you open up a business in a black neighborhood, it was automatically ranked less, right? And they use the statistics from Yelp reviews to kind of show the, to back that, that up. And so I want to do a deep dive on that. So I kind of, the thing is, we're Baldwin and uh, right. We're very much talking about experience and social piece, right? I kind of want to dive into that entrepreneurial aspect too, the economics 
Um, so I'm just kind of creating my own little way while acknowledging and paying homage to uh, those that came before. And I also want to salute the fact that you were a uh, Marine and you served our country. Why do black Marines or black veterans, why do black veterans have such a different time than veterans of another persuasion? The military really is a melting pot. I mean, they're not lying when they say that, but because of the way the military is structured, um, it is still like a very class hierarchy, you know what I'm saying, in terms of like officer and enlisted. And so as you start to move up in the ranks, particularly as an officer in the military, you know, your world becomes less colorful, if I could say. Um, and so you find yourself experiencing where you're almost like one of one a lot. It's very, the military, the military precedes civilian world, right? So like the military will integrate well before the civilian world integrates, that kind of stuff. And so the military officer corps is a very, it's very much like a corporate boardroom, you know? It's uh, the same kind of experience, the same kind of social dynamics, you know? Um, and so for us, as we start to ascend, right, positions of power, influence, et cetera, the landscape around us change. And because there's so few of us in these positions, it's like walking on eggshells a lot of the time. You know, you just everything you do is seen. Um, it's just witnessed, you know, because you stand out by nature. You stand out. Um, and so a lot of times we have different experiences and it's just the way it is. I want to salute my good brother from the Beach Brothers show, Conrad Chesvener. He's been handling the show the last 20 minutes. He asked some great questions, left some great comments. One of those questions had to do with boxing, um, the art of boxing. Um, I, I, I want to go back to that question as we close out today, because one of your entrepreneurial spaces is your boxing, your school of boxing. Yeah. So let's end with the arts. Let's end with arts. Talk about the art of boxing. Boxing is it's the ultimate way to test your courage. One of the many ways, right? And we see this now. There's just something about fighting, right? Stepping inside the ring, find out what you're capable of, and going toe-to-toe with someone else. And I think a lot of people are curious about it. They want to experience, right? So there's this romanticism that comes with it. And then those of us that go through that experience and and are labeled as boxers, right? We hold a certain level of, um, it's one of those things you can't buy, you know? It's the thing that is like, you really have to experience. You got the best trainers in the world, but at the end of the day, you still have to get in the ring and prove it. And so there's this mystique that comes around with it. But one of the things that I've done recently with uh, boxing and the entrepreneurship is I had an epiphany, right? It takes courage to step inside a ring, Mm. to step inside a, a, a square circle. You know what else takes courage? Starting a business. It's the same type of courage, right? It takes courage to try and fail. You know, it takes courage to walk into a boardroom and be one of one. It takes courage to grow up in a community uh, of black people and then go and work and live in a community where no one looks like you. That takes courage, right? And it takes courage to be legendary. And so at Ironbound, what we're doing is we're connecting courage through boxing and entrepreneurship to make kids who aren't afraid to try. Kids that have courage. Beautiful. And you answered Brother Conrad's comment question, which was, is capitalism like boxing in that it is a sweet science? And I think you, your, your answer just now really hit to the essence of what Brother Conrad was asking. Um, one last thing, man. We're all three of us men of Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, I started the process with uh, Gamma Epsilon chapter at Hampton University, didn't finish. I finished the process with the Gamma Xi chapter of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated in Virginia Beach. Where'd y'all come through? I'll let Philip go first. <laughs> Thank you, uh, my dear, my dear profite, Mike Stedman. Uh, Naval Academy chapter, Iota Mew Mew, uh, spring 2010. Yeah. Naval Academy chapter out of me Muse, Spring 08. And I'll tell you the thing that when I got to the Naval Academy, before I went to the Naval Academy, I didn't see a black midshipman. I was just going on hopes and dreams. I might have seen him on a brochure, but I had never met a black midshipman in person. And then I get to the Naval Academy and a lot of the black men that I looked up to, because it's a big responsibility. You're taking young black kids from the South, put them in this environment. You know, we mentor each other. 
You know, you kind of have to. And a lot of the ones I looked up to, it just so happened that they're Omega. And it's the same thing in life. I come across people that are the football coaches in the community that are doing stuff. And what do we all have in common? We A lot of us tend to be Greek. More often than not, we tend to be men of Omega, you know, if we're in the trenches. And so, you know, I think it just it's just a testament to our tribe. I say, I say, I would, I would say, uh, Greek letter, Greek letter. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We, you, we can say Greek, and we know what it means. But for the super conscious out there, you know, they were like, you can claim to be Greek. Nah, we're, we're Greek lettered organizations. You know, we don't worship Greeks. <laughs> we don't worship Greece. I went through a lot of that with the uh, conscious community after I crossed. Uh, so, hey, man, peace to the bros, peace to our beautiful fraternity, peace to the future of our beautiful fraternity. May she always shine. And brother Mike, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk with you on the Get On Code show. You know, the code is empowerment. And so when we say get on code, we're saying get on the empowerment train and ride that baby because that's the train that's going to deliver us to the promised land. Uh, Brother Phil, glad that you're part of the team. Glad you're part of the Get On Code show. And Mike, we got to have you back, man. Phil's put that in the comments. I totally agree. Ashe and I'm into that. We got to have you back, man. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. This is a great platform. I'm about to pick your brain once we cut off about StreamYard. And I apologize, y'all. I got to rock the beanie because my hair is looking a little rough. You know, I'm in the Northeast. You know, I'm in New York. I'm in Harlem right now. I'll be back in Newark tonight. So, uh, you know, lockdown is a little bit different up here. Um, so, but I apologize, but I'll be sharp. Well, hey, salute to all the people in Harlem, but I have to say this. Brooklyn is a blood type. So (laughs) peace to my Brooklynites (laughs) and root to the bros. Hey, good night. Have a great day. Peace and prosperity. Peace, everyone. Peace, everyone. Stay floss. 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 The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests, unless we say we agree, unless explicitly stated. <laughs> stay floss, stay floss, stay floss, stay floss, stay floss. Stay floss.